Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. It's April 30th, 2019. How are you? Hope you're doing well. So today we're talking about my top 10 favorite studio tools. It's a little bit of a generic title, as you might imagine that everything we've talked about so far has kind of been a tool for the studio, but these tools are more uh, geared towards being an engineer, being a producer, working with clients, being a mixer, all the things that help my job go a little bit smoother specifically. Like obviously a nice microphone or um, you know a nice guitar tool or bass tool can help my life go smoother, but um, these things are specifically more about just audio engineering, producing, mixing. A couple of housekeeping things before we get started. Number one, um, to all of my Patreon supporters and PayPal donators, uh, I love you and appreciate you. Thank you for helping out with the podcast. I just wanted to say that you uh, Patreon subscribers will not be charged for four separate episodes for this four-part series. I originally intended for this to be a single episode, but of course I ended up getting on rants about every single piece of gear I brought up. <laughs> so uh, this actually turned into uh, more of an episode. I, I, I don't know if I've ever had four podcast episodes in a single month, um, so you guys will only be charged for one podcast episode this month. I wanted to talk just briefly about Patreon. If any of you out there are not familiar, it's really cool and really helpful for the podcast. It's very simple. All you have to do is sign up on Patreon and set up an account where you can donate to my podcast and you will only be charged when I release an episode. So you want, it's not a monthly thing. It's not a, you know, it, it's only when I release new episodes. So you can pledge a dollar or $5 or $2 or $10 or whatever you want um, to help support the podcast. If you've been a fan of the podcast for a while, you're probably familiar with the fact that I don't have any sponsors and I kind of like it that way. Um, I, it's really annoying to me when you see a podcast podcast or a YouTube channel and, you know, twice throughout the show, they randomly start talking about, uh, you know, Dollar Shave Club or Blue Apron or something. Um, it's a product that they clearly don't really use or like, you know, they're just doing it for the money. Um, I, I'm not into that. That's not how I roll. And that's not what I want to do to the podcast. If I do get sponsorships and I have tried and currently am trying to get some, I want it to be from audio companies and audio companies that I actually believe in and use their products. Um, I don't really want to do it any other way. So, if you're interested otherwise in being a supporter on Patreon, please consider doing that. You are really, really helping the podcast stay alive. Um, my next Patreon goal is $200 per episode. I believe we're up to $40 an episode now, which is great. At $200 an episode, which really only requires uh, 160 of you out there to donate a dollar per episode, okay, a dollar, right? Like, I spend hours doing this show, and a dollar doesn't even cover, you know, the beer that I have while I'm doing it, <laughs> you know? So, um, it, it, it's really, really amazingly helpful, and uh, if I can get to $200 per episode it will totally offset the cost of me having all the domains, having the website, having the podcast player, um, setting up my, you know, uh, all the bandwidth and stuff that comes through, as well as uh, the time it takes for me to do the episodes, the actual like recording and editing time that it takes me to do that. $200 an episode is my next goal, and it would be amazing if you would consider donating to that cause. All right. Number two, I've had some people email me recently about the mailing list. Okay, so the mailing list is free to sign up. You can go to recordingloungepodcast.com and you can sign up for the mailing list over there. It's free. It's zero spam. As far as I'm concerned, um, I, I don't really use it that often, but I do use it to help alert people of new episodes, um, new YouTube videos, uh, any updates, any particular things I'd like to share. Uh, so definitely make sure to sign up for that. It's free. It's easy. It takes like five minutes to sign up, if that. Um, so anyway, go check that out. Number three, I really appreciate all the emails for podcast episode suggestions. I have a huge running list of all the episodes I'd like to do. I'm looking at it right now, it's 
at least three pages long. Um, and I've got lots of things I want to do in the future. But again, I need your help and support. Please continue to send me your ideas for podcast episodes. Um, it's really helpful for me. And, and, and a lot of times it will spawn other ideas. So even if the idea that you send me, you might think, well, I don't know, this might not be a very good idea or whatever. Um, he probably won't do this. Please send me your ideas because it can sometimes lead to bigger podcasts discoveries and where I say, okay, well, maybe I'll do a podcast about this bigger topic that actually includes that as well. Because sometimes you might have a small idea that I couldn't really fill up an hour podcast with, but I certainly could include it in a bigger episode with lots of other ideas. Um, I've got a couple of really cool ones coming up that I, I've, I've had people asking about for a while now. So thank you for all those suggestions. Please continue to do that. You can email me at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com or fill out the form on the website on the contact page. Next, I want to make sure all of you are aware of the resources page on the Recording Lounge website and the blog. Okay, I don't get a lot of traffic on the resources page. I can tell from my analytics, and I just want to make sure all of you out there are aware of it. Okay, You can go to recordingloungepodcast.com, and up on the top, you can see resources. And on that page, there's a lot of links to great YouTube channels, uh, recording, mixing, mastering websites, uh, electronics, cool gear companies. I have some links to books. Uh, and if you have anything you'd like to suggest for that, please send me an email. Let me know. I'm more than happy to do it. I like to have all this stuff in one place so it's easy for people to navigate around and find stuff without having to hunt through the internet for days and days and days finding good stuff. So make sure you check that out. And of course, the blog, recordingloungepodcast.com slash blog. I don't make a ton of blog posts, but there are definitely some other cool bits of information you can get there. One of my favorite and most popular blog posts is the top 15 pitfalls of the recording musician. Okay, so this was a little uh, blurb that I wrote about some of the pitfalls and, and struggles that I see from musicians, from my clients, from working with people for the last 12 years. Um, so feel free to share that, show your clients, show your friends, show your other musician friends. I think those can be really helpful for you and give you a lot of good info um, to maybe improve your own playing or help your clients know where they might have shortcomings. Because I know my clients really appreciated that article. Um, so one client even told me, he's like, oh man, it was like a, you know, a to-do list before I came into the studio. It was really helpful. So that's great. Anyway, so I just want to make sure all of you are aware of this. Make sure you're checking out the website. The website also generally has um, my latest YouTube videos posted on the front page, and uh, my blog posts are on there on the front page as well. You can check out the YouTube page at youtube.com slash recording lounge. Make sure you're a subscriber there. Even if you don't find yourself, you know, cruising through my YouTube channel very often, it's really helpful if you subscribe. It helps my channel look better, right? And the more subscribers subscribers I have, uh, the more likely I am to get more subscribers. So anyway, I appreciate all of you out there who've been doing amazing things to help support the podcast through Patreon and PayPal donations. Um, it, it's a really, really amazing thing. I, I love the community that we're starting to develop here at the Recording Lounge. Uh, it's been a long time. You know, we've had the podcast a while now and and uh, I've got so many good new clients and friends and connections made from the podcast. Uh, I know I'm not the most social or uh, <laughs> um, outspoken podcast host that you may find, but, um, you know, I've said it a hundred times. I'll say it again. I, I'm an audio engineer first. I'm working with clients, you know, all the time. And uh, the podcast is just sort of a side uh, labor of love that I love to do. And I love to help people learn and get better and love to be a resource for people who need help and have questions and don't know where to turn. Uh, and don't and are afraid to just put a post out there on a forum uh, out of fear of getting ridiculed by the masses. <laughs> uh, so, as always, if you have questions, comments, please send them my way, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Now, on to our episode. So today we're talking about my top 10 favorite studio tools. Now, again, these are things that have directly made my job as an audio engineer, studio owner, producer, mixer, easier, better, more efficient, more enjoyable, all of the above. Some of these things might be a little bit unexpected, but hopefully they'll inspire you to look into them and maybe, you know, figure out ways that you could use them and it, maybe they could help your workflow. So let's go for it.
All right, number 10, DR short boom stands. So, I know a boom stand is not very sexy, and it's not necessarily the coolest thing that you can get, but I love the short boom stands from DR. Um, they're simple, they're effective, they're just heavy enough, but they're really so incredibly useful. I use these things so often. I use them on guitar amps all the time. I use them on kick drum. I use them on snare. I use them on toms. They're just tall enough to reach the toms. Sometimes not, but generally speaking, they're tall enough to reach the toms. And one of the reasons I love these so much is that they're small, they're easy to set up, they're not too expensive, and they keep clear lines of sight in the room. You don't have big, tall boom stands everywhere getting in the way of people's sight. Okay, drummers really appreciate this when they don't have a bunch of stands everywhere and they feel like they're trapped and caged in. These small stands allow me to place things very tightly, very accurately, and not have so much sort of view obstructed. Okay, I know it seems like a simple one, but it's really helpful, especially even for things like acoustic guitar or cello, where a player is generally sitting when they're recording, these stands don't sort of like hover over them and make them feel intimidated. They're small, they're out of the way, and it makes things easy to place. I know it's simple, I know it's not the sexiest thing out there, but I love short boom stands. Number nine, Telefunken Isolation Headphones. So, some of you might be familiar with the Extreme Isolation, I think, EX29 headphones, um, and I've used those for years. However, in the last probably three years, maybe four, Telefunken came out with their versions of the, of the Extreme Isolation headphones. Um, now, they look basically identical, except they have a Telefunken logo on them. However, they sound much better. Now, I'm not sure if they've updated the Extreme Isolation headphones, but what I can tell is not only do clients like these headphones a lot, they work super well at isolating click and isolating any bleed from headphones. They're comfortable, and they sound pretty darn good, too. Um, they're about $150, I believe, and I have four sets of them because I love them so much. Okay, there are a lot of isolation headphones that clients don't like. They're not very comfortable, or they don't sound very good, or they, you know, they squeeze on the head a little bit, and these don't really have that problem. The cups are comfortable, the headband is adjustable, they sound decent, and they're durable. And you can get replacement parts for them, which is nice too. You can get a replacement headband if your headband breaks. You don't have to buy an entire new set of headphones, which is really, really cool. That's something Extreme Isolation has done for a long time. Um, I use these things all the time. Okay, it's, it's really hard for me to find a set of isolation headphones that singers actually like. Okay, and even singers like these things. Um, usually singers don't like isolation headphones and drummers, drummers are used to kind of dealing with them, right? Um, I was in a session the other day where I was using the extreme isolation headphones and granted, my pair of extreme isolation headphones is pretty old, but... A bass player was using them, and he was like, man, I just can't hear the bass at all. Like, I, I just, I, it's just gone. And the kick drum. And I was like, all right, well, let me give you a set of the Telefunken headphones. So I gave him the Telefunken headphones, and he was like, wow, these sound so much better. I can hear my bass great now. And I was like, really? Is it? I thought they were pretty similar. And I listened to them back to back, and I was like, man, these really do sound better for sure. Um, so the Telefunken isolation headphones, definitely consider them in your studio. They're really, really cool, not too expensive, sound decent, and allow for nice isolation of click and any you know bleed uh, from headphones into the mic. Really useful for you know anything where you're recording a quiet source like an acoustic guitar or quiet vocals, and you need to isolate um, so you don't get any bleed. Okay, here's another very geeky and non-sexy item, but it's really, really cool. It is a Dorico USB hub that's powered and has 10 USB 3 ports on it, as well as a charging port, which is also USB, but it's specifically for charging. So I know this is, you know, this is super lame. I'm sorry, I apologize. But I leave this thing up on my desk and I have tons of stuff plugged into it. 
I love it because it's all right in front of me. I've got 10 USB ports right directly in front of me. I can keep my iLock plugged in, my UAD Octo Ultimate plugged in, my external hard drives, my keyboard and mouse, my Steinberg e-licensor, everything plugs into this, and I plug this one thing into my computer. It's a really simple, handy device. Again, the company is Dorico, D-O-R-I-C-O. I bought this on... Newegg, I think for maybe 30 bucks, something like that. It's not that expensive. Um, it comes with a power cable and a USB cable that attaches into the, the USB hub and goes to my computer. Everything that I use pretty much goes into this thing. And what makes it really handy is if somebody ever comes over with, say, a laptop or with a different computer, I can just plug this single USB 3 cable into their computer and they have access to my iLock and all of that stuff in one. My interface is Thunderbolt, so, you know, they would need that if they wanted to use my interface, but it's just a really handy device. Sometimes it can be really hard to find a good USB hub that's durable, um, that doesn't fail, that doesn't have errors, or, you know, sometimes they don't play nice with certain USB devices. I haven't had any problems with this thing. And I've had it, I mean, it's on sitting here on my desk all the time, 24 hours a day, and it works great. So I love this thing. I, it's, it has cleaned up my entire workflow of USB devices because I have a lot of USB devices. Um, again, not sexy, but super cool, super efficient, affordable, does the job. All right, number seven is the SE DM1 Dynamite. All right, this is a fairly new item, and for all of you out there who have ever used a cloud lifter, you'll be very familiar with what this device does. Essentially, it's an inline microphone preamp. You can put it directly in line with any dynamic or ribbon microphone that does not require phantom power, and essentially it acts as a little pre-preamp. So you run your microphone into the box, like the cloud lifter, and then you power it up with phantom power from your mic pre, and it adds about you know 15 dB of clean gain, 15 or 18 or something like that. Well, the DM1 Dynamite is very similar, but it's lower noise and more gain. Okay, it's been a long time since somebody has come out with one of these inline preamps, and SE just released this one, I think, earlier this year. Um, it's about $100, and I'm using one right now with my SM7. All of you out there who have ever used an SM7 know that it's a very low output microphone, and you sometimes need to crank the gain on your preamp. Well, the problem with that is not every preamp sounds very good up cranked that high and you start to get a lot of noise. With this thing, I can plug it directly into the SM7 and then a cable right out of that and run into my mic preamp and let's see where my mic preamp gain is right now. My mic preamp gain is at 30 and I am running really hot. So with this thing, I'm actually running my mic pre at like 50 or 55. Okay, this thing has a ton of output and all it needs is a little bit of phantom power and you're good to go. Um, so yeah, it's really a simple, super effective device. You can run it at the mic or you can run it at the snake or you can run it right into the preamp. It's generally most effective when you put it right at the mic because it does allow for a stronger signal to be sent over the XLR line, which gives you less chance of noise. Because if you put it at the very end of the chain, you still have that mic level signal, um, you know, super, super low output mic signal all the way down the chain, and then you're boosting it up. If you put this attached right into the microphone and then plug your cable into it, um, you're getting a much stronger signal throughout. And it seems to help any microphone, whether it's a ribbon or a dynamic, become much more versatile in terms of recording vocals or in terms of recording acoustic instruments or recording anything quiet. Like, I love using active ribbon mics on strings, but sometimes I need a different sound for it, and not all of my ribbon mics are active. So, with the DM1 Dynamite, I can plug that into any passive ribbon and get a more active-like gain level and get the tone of that microphone. 
It's for a hundred bucks. You can't beat it. Okay. It's small. It fits into a small little XLR barrel. You don't even have to have a little box anymore. Like the cloud lifter. Um, Triton, I think made one called the Fet head that was similar, but didn't sound quite as good as this. Um, just in my opinion. Uh, but I love this thing. It's simple. You should go get one. Number six is my control surface. Now I will admit I am not absolutely crazy about my particular control surface, which is a Behringer X-Touch. Okay, and I'll get into that in just a minute. But in general, a mixing control surface to me is a great studio tool. There are a lot of them out there. There's the Yukon one, or I guess it's now, I guess Avid still runs that, the Avid Artist or whatever it's called. Um, there's the single fader, like fader port style. There's the Behringer. You know, I do think that there is a little bit of a hole in the market. I do wish that there were more control surfaces out there at different price points. Um, there seems to be kind of like some cheaper ones, some cheaper ones, some cheaper ones, and then incredibly expensive ones, incredibly expensive ones, you know? There's seems to be a little bit of a, a mid-range area there that's a little bit shy. So I do wish that more companies made control surfaces. But mine is the Behringer X-Touch. The reason I'm not crazy about it, you know, Behringer doesn't have the best build quality. The unit can be a little bit noisy as the faders move. But the thing I do like about it is that it's fully MIDI programmable with Nuendo, which is what I use. So I can go in and set up a generic remote and customize this unit where each fader, each knob, each button is customized to do an exact thing that I want it to do, which is really, really handy. So what I mostly use it for is for doing automation with a fader rather than drawing it in by hand, which I can never go back to doing. Um, I, it's totally indispensable for me in terms of automation. I, I don't think I could ever write automation with my mouse again. It's not even fun. You know what I mean? Like I find that with a control surface, I automate things a lot more because it's easy, it's quick, and it's more fun to do it with a fader. But I also have how many? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, sixteen rotary knobs, which each also have a button. So I can set those up to be my pans. I could set them up to be my gain. I could set them up to be whatever. On mine, I have them set up as pans on the left, and then on the right side, I have those set up as send levels. So I can also automate panning and send level to effects and whatnot, all from the same unit in one pass. I have mutes and solos and uh, all that stuff also as set as buttons so I can automate mutes. It's, uh, I mean, truly a fantastic unit on, on paper. Like I said, it does have its flaws, but the idea of having a control surface I think is one that you should really consider. You don't have to get a big one. You don't have to get an expensive one. But something, even just the single fader like fader port, will kind of change your life a little bit in terms of automation really consider doing that. They're not that expensive. Um, and if you really find that you like it, you might one day consider upgrading. Like I said, I will probably upgrade this one day, something a little bit more well-built, a little bit higher end. But um, I've used this thing for about, I don't know, five years now, and it's still holding up. Um, you know, like I said, not without its flaws, but a control surface is something that definitely speeds up my workflow, makes it more interesting, and helps make automation and just mixing in general a little bit more fun and efficient. Number five is my Weller soldering station. I've talked about this in the past, how important it is to make your own cables, how much money you will save. Let me reiterate, you will save thousands and thousands of dollars over the course of your studio career. Soldering is not that hard, okay? You can learn how to do it on YouTube, I'm sure. Um, and if not, you could go to lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A, and probably learn it there from, like, professionals or Expert Village. Or is, is that website still around? Anyway, <laughs> um, there are definitely places to learn about it, but I have saved so much money and time and annoyance by making and fixing my own cables. Um, a soldering station is anywhere from, you know, 50 to a $100, maybe 150 if you get a, an extra nice one. Um, and it's really simple. It's a soldering iron with variable heat, uh, you know, variable temperature, variable wattage, depending on which one you get. It allows you to make cables and fix cables. 
I make almost every cable that exists in my studio. Guitar cables, little patch cables for the patch bay, patch cables for guitar pedal boards. I make all my mic cables. I make all of my snakes. I made my guitar patch bay. Um, it, like I said, it's really not that hard and you will save yourself thousands of dollars. For example, if you go to the store right now and buy a Megami Gold cable, that will probably cost you, you know, a mic cable, that will probably cost you $60. But you can make the exact same thing with parts, with the exact same cable, the exact same Neutrik ends, everything for about $20. Okay? That's a third of the cost. That's not like 10% off, 20% off. We're talking a third of the cost. Okay, cables are really expensive because what's more expensive than materials? Labor. In almost any area, it's very expensive to employ people, to employ people to actually sit there and solder cable. So, um, these cables are typically made by people and you have to pay people to solder. And it's also not necessarily a skill that everybody has. And I'm sure the working conditions in a lot of those places are not great. So definitely consider making your own cables. You will save lots of time, lots of money. You can get all of those materials online. I use a website called Redco, R-E-D-C-O, redco.com. Redco, if you'd like to be a sponsor of the Recording Lounge podcast, please contact me. Um, (laughs) uh, But Redco is awesome. I buy all of my cable there. Um, Me personally, I really like Mogami cable for mic cables. I like Canari cable. Canari has a little bit lower noise being a braided shield, but it is a little bit harder to work with. For instrument cables and unbalanced cables, I like to use Lake cable, which is actually a dual braided shield. Now, it's very tough to work with. um, And when I say tough, I really just mean it's annoying. Um, But it has the lowest noise and really great sound quality um, of any cable that I've tested so far. And I've tested a lot. Okay, I've tested a whole lot of cables. Um, So I use Lake Cable for all of that stuff. But I also really like Canari for guitar cable. Um, Definitely want to get the best shielding that you can for unbalanced instrument cables just because they're the most prone to noise. For balanced cabling, you'll be fine with Mogami, Canari, any of the ones that are out there. But I really like those too. Again, it doesn't take that much time to learn how to solder. You'll get better at it as you as you go on. Um, stop wasting money on cables, okay? Stop. It really is a waste of money. You can do it yourself, and it's a valuable skill just to have, to be able to wire up a guitar. Same basic skill in soldering is used to make cables, okay? All you really need is a soldering station of some kind. You'll need a little bit of solder, Uh, which you can get in a spool. Uh, You'll probably need something to clean your soldering iron, which some people use a sponge, uh, you know, a a damp sponge. Some people, uh, I like the uh, brass shavings ball that you can get at some of these electronics places where you can actually, it's a little bit abrasive. And as you uh, turn your soldering iron in it, it will clean off any uh, specks of, you know, hardened metal or anything like that. Um, And you might want to consider getting a vise of some kind so you can clamp cables in. Sometimes it can get a little bit hot and it's, you know, you need something to hold the actual cable end while you're soldering. So I use a little vise that cost me $10 at a local hardware store. It's small. It's like a jeweler's vise almost. It's very small and hooks right onto my desk and I can put my, you know, quarter inch cable ends in there and solder cables onto it. It's very simple. Okay. Um, And if you guys ever want me to do any shows about soldering or YouTube videos or anything like that, I'm more than happy to do it. Um, You can even go a little bit extra and you can get heat shrink and you can get tech flex and you can get all this other stuff. You don't have to do that if you don't want to. But um, what I'm saying is you'll still save tons of money by doing it yourself, especially when it comes to snake cables and, uh, you know, and long XLR cables. You really will save tons and tons of money. So please get into soldering your own cables. Number four, a cable tester. Okay, so I can't really talk about making your own cables without another really useful tool in the studio, which is a cable tester. Let me get mine real quick. All right, so I use the classic blue Ebtec 6-in-1 cable tester. Uh, This is a little simple box about the size of a guitar pedal, and you can test XLR cables, TRS cables, you can test small 1-8-inch cables, TT cables, RCA cables, and MIDI cables. And you can test, say, an XLR to TRS or TRS to XLR. 
Um, it's a really simple device. I believe it's about a hundred bucks. It's powered by a battery and it's, I mean, it is what it is. It allows you to test for cables that are wrong. Okay. Um, that are incorrectly wired or that have broken off a ground. Um, as you probably know, cabling can kind of be a nightmare and it's hard to really find bad cables. With this thing, it's very, very simple to find and, uh, and know for sure that a cable is incorrectly wired or missing something. And if you know how to solder, then you can fix that cable. <laughs> um, so, definitely consider getting a cable tester. I use this thing way more than I thought I would, but I use this thing a lot. Of course, when you're making cables, you can also use it to test that you made it correctly. Okay, it's like your own teacher grading you on your work. <laughs> um, so make sure you pick up a cable tester. They're not that expensive. Again, this is the Ebtech 6-in-1 cable tester. I think it's about 100 bucks. There are a bunch of cable testers out there, okay? But this is the one I like and use. It's simple, it's effective, and it does the job. Number three is my Dangerous Monitor ST, but realistically, what this really means is a good, solid, stepped monitor controller. So, let's talk briefly about what that is. There are two main types of monitor controllers out there. You have your passive-style, potentiometer-based controllers, and then you have your stepped, resistor-based controllers, which have switches and or relays. And what's the difference between these two? Well, I can tell you that potentiometers are not made that well. Even the really good ones are still not made that well. And there's a tolerance difference between the left and the right. So just running into one of these other monitor controllers, you might have a slight level difference between the left and the right. The other problem with potentiometers is that a lot of times as you turn them down, um, the left and right get skewed. And the left is maybe a little bit louder than the right. If you've ever turned down like a headphone volume really far almost all the way to off and one side goes away before the other that's what i'm talking about with a stepped controller that doesn't happen because essentially what it is is a series of pads created with resistors so your full volume uh you know imagine the volume pot not even there running to your monitors full volume your monitors are turned all the way up what a stepped volume controller does is say, all right, I'm going to add in a 2 dB pad and then a 4 dB pad and a 6 dB pad and an 8 dB pad and a 10 dB pad all the way down to, you know, silence, right? And you can click, click, click. You can hear mine in the background. That's mine, which is the Dangerous Monitor ST, which uses relays for all the switching. Um, and it changes your level evenly and perfectly matched between the left and the right. I love this thing for a couple of reasons. That's just the main reason, but the other reasons are you have multiple inputs. So I have an aux input, which I use for when people need to plug in an iPod. I also have a second analog input that I can run to a laptop or to some other interface, um, and I can monitor off of a separate rig entirely. I have four inputs plus the aux input. So one other thing that I've done is run a separate bus output of Nuendo with essentially like an alternate mix, and I can monitor from that alternate mix. I've also done it where I've put in a reference track into my session, run, uh, you know, bust out through a set of outputs that comes back in to the monitor input, say monitor input number four, and I can quickly and easily switch back and forth between my main mix and my reference mix. There's so many variables with that. I mean, you, you, you could figure out that, you know, all kinds of complex routing situations for days on that. I also have three speaker selections. So I can do my main outputs. I can have Alt-1, Alt-2. And on Alt-2, I can also include a sub. Now for me, I'm just using Alt-Main uh, and Alt-1 right now, but I'm thinking about getting an extra set of monitors um, that's sort of a little bit different than the barefoots. So I can put those on Alt-2. And just with a click of a button, I can switch between these three speakers uh, very, very easily. And level match them. There's a little bit of a trim control in here as well to help level match different speakers of different brands. Um, other things this thing can do, it has a mono button to collapse the stereo image into mono, which I use a lot. I mix in mono a whole lot. I can uh, use a talkback. Now, I will admit the talkback on the Dangerous sucks. It's awful. 
Um, I, I don't actually use the talkback on this unit, but um, that's also because I have my own talkback system already set up. If you didn't have one, it at least is something that you could use. Uh, it has a dim button, which I also use all the time. If somebody, you know, is coming up to me behind me and say, hey, uh, stop, you know, stop it for one second or turn it down for a second. I don't have to change my level. I can just press the dim button and it dims it by, I think, 20 dB. Um, really useful for taking a minute to talk to somebody or say something to a player or something. Um, I can mute or solo the left and right speaker, and this unit can also be used for surround sound. I can't describe how useful this box is. It is really kind of the centerpiece between my rig and my speakers. Everything, uh, all of my outputs, you know, connect into it, and my speakers connect to this unit as well. Um, a monitor controller is a really, really helpful thing. Uh, it also has a headphone input right on the front that I can plug headphones into, and it has a little headphone amp uh, just right here, right by my right hand. Also, very, very handy. I don't have to, you know, plug up to some other headphone amp or anything like that or waste any of the headphone amps in my clients, you know, from my clients' mixes. Um, this is a duplicate output from my main output that allows me to have my own little headphone amp right next to me. Um, I love this unit in the grand scheme of things for all that it does. It's not that expensive. I think it costs about 1400 bucks, and I've had it for... Geez, uh, I think I got this in 2012, maybe, and it works just as well as it did the day I bought it. It's an awesome piece of gear. So definitely consider getting a monitor controller and definitely consider getting one that is a stepped attenuator, not just a pot or potentiometer based one. Um, they can really, really enhance your workflow. Number two, gobo panels. This one is a little strange, and thankfully, it's not very expensive, but they are incredibly useful in the studio. What is a gobo? Well, a gobo is basically a fancy term for a large acoustic panel that you use to isolate people or in order to change the ambience uh, for a given little area. Now, I've had lots of different kinds of gobos over the years, big ones and tall ones and skinnier ones, and... I use them most to create little booths in the live room. If you've listened to the show for a while, you probably know that my live room is pretty live. Um, it's not a huge room, but it's certainly not small. I've got tall ceilings and a pretty good amount of cubic footage going on in there, and I can't always get things as tight as I need them. Maybe I need a vocalist to sound like they're in a booth, but they're not. With a gobo panel or a pair of them, I can create a little booth within the room. And this is huge because people are generally more comfortable in a larger space rather than in a tiny little booth. But with these gobo panels, I can put a singer or an acoustic guitar player in a little booth within the bigger room. So they don't feel closed in, they don't feel locked in, and I can get a tight and controlled sound while, you know, maintaining their comfort. So what's really interesting about gobos, people have asked me questions about things like the SE reflection filter, and to be honest, those don't make a lot of sense to me because they're behind the microphone. Not only that, but they obstruct the view of the singer badly. They're right in front of their face. Now, some people would say, well, you can put the lyric sheet in there or whatever, and it's like, yeah, I suppose. But, you know, if you're using a cardioid microphone for vocals, and 90% of the time you probably will be, um, it already rejects from the back. So it doesn't really make any sense to put acoustic treatment around the back of the microphone. Um, typically, the traditional way that we would set up gobos, like in a commercial space, is we would build a little room around them and you'd put it in like a U-shape um, behind the singer. Okay? Um, that's how, how I've always done it. And that's what makes the most sense to me because that's where the mic is actually pointing. Um, you get much more bang for your buck. Now, of course, it's easier for them to sell a product like an SE reflection filter when it kind of works and kind of helps deaden the sound in the room a little bit. Um, now, I will say, it does make a little more sense if you're using them on a guitar amp with a figure eight, like a ribbon. Okay, that actually makes more sense because the figure eight picks up in the back. And of course, if you're using that on stage, you're pointing that right at the audience. And if you're using it in a large room, you're pointing it right at the room. So they actually do make quite a bit of sense if you're rejecting the back of a figure eight mic. But they don't make a lot of sense uh, for rejecting the back of a cardioid mic, which already rejects the back. <laughs> um, so... 
Gobo panels are not that expensive. You can build them yourself. You can put them on wheels. You can build them two inches thick or four inches thick or eight inches thick. Um, and being able to maneuver them around your room and make and change the sound of your room is huge. It's huge because again, I'm, I'm so big into, um, getting it right at the source and getting the right sound for the recording, not just a good sound, but the right sound. And sometimes the right sound is really open and roomy. Sometimes the right sound is super tight and dead. And most of us these days, myself included, can't afford to have five studios, you know, to track stuff. I have a vocal booth, but it's a little small and can be a little congesting. And, you know, singers don't necessarily like singing in there. Um, some of them do, but, you know, I also have my big live room. And most of us need the ability to adjust the room. And with some gobo panels, it's incredibly easy. One of the brands I like for this is Acoustimac. They're cheap. They're not the most amazing craftsmanship, I will admit, but they're cheap, they're effective, they do the job, and you don't have to build them yourself. I actually weighed the pros and cons of building them myself, and it was actually cheaper for me to buy them from Acoustimac um, than it was for me to spend my own, essentially, my own studio time to build them myself. So that was a big draw. But GIK also makes great ones. Real Traps makes great ones. And again, you can make them yourself. Um, I would recommend making them two or four inches thick. And, it, it, and again, you can make them for different purposes. If you need them for isolation, you could put a center slab of wood in the middle where it's actually like a hard three-quarter inch piece of plywood or MDF. And then on the left side and the right side, um, you could put absorbent material, but in the center, there's actually a mass to help isolate. So you could also make gobos uh, in an effort to isolate the sound from other people, not just create a different sound. Okay. I use the gobos a lot for tightening up drums or for isolating a singer or for tightening up a singer or for putting around a guitar amp. You can build them two feet tall, four feet tall. There's a lot of versatility there. If you don't have gobos in your studio, definitely consider making them or buying them because they can really allow you to get different types of ambience and levels of tightness around your room. And essentially, like it's, it's like a cheap way of giving you multiple rooms, you know what I mean? Which is huge. A lot more flexibility in tracking. All right, number one. And I, it's not really a recording lounge episode without this, right? It's my monitoring chain. Now, I know, I know, I know you're probably sitting there saying, oh, he's got barefoot monitors. They're amazing. Blah, blah, blah. I can't afford that. I'm here to tell you again and again and again, it's not just the monitors. It's the monitors in the room, where they're placed. It's where your head is placed. It's how your room is treated. It's the size of your room. It's all of it. It's the whole acoustic system. I'm not going to get into a huge rant about why it's so important, I promise. But I'm here to tell you that I just treated a room, okay? Um, someone hired me to treat their control room. And he had nice gear. He had nice monitors. Not like crazy nice, but nice. He used Atom A7Xs, okay? Tons of people have Atom A7Xs. I'm sure many of you out there have Atom monitors. They're very, very cool mid-priced monitors that aren't crazy cheap, but aren't crazy expensive. Lots of people use them, okay? Um, he was getting an 18 dB dip at 80 hertz. 18 dB. After the Probably, oh, six hours of working with speaker placement, putting the speakers up on stands, moving some treatment around, doing some other things like that. We were able to reduce that to 6 dB. 6 dB versus 18 dB down. Okay, that's huge. We didn't add any more treatment. We didn't spend any money other than him paying me to do this. But with a measurement microphone and with my knowledge of acoustics, we were able to move the speakers around and find a good spot that greatly reduced his nulls. Okay, I can definitely tell you if you don't have speaker stands for your speakers, you probably should get them because after what I experienced with that, it was an immediate huge improvement. Um, and he even had the you know monitor pads that he put up on his desk. I've never been a huge fan of those. I've always felt like they don't really help that much. And um, I've been with Barefoot so long, they're so heavy, I've had to put them on stands, right? But just out of this, like the atoms aren't crazy heavy. Um, 
And just experiencing moving those speakers onto stands was already like 50% of the way there, meaning freestanding speaker stands that go on the floor behind the desk. Um, That was a huge improvement just right off the bat. Um, So I will definitely be recommending that to people from here on out. Um, But really, really, it's so important. It makes no sense to, quote, learn your room if your room is lying to you. It makes no sense zero okay it makes no sense whatsoever you can't make any good decision if your room is completely lying to you it's just impossible you will chase your tail you will go to the car and check your mixes you'll check it on headphones and you'll be frustrated and you'll be you know you'll be like oh man i'm terrible why can't i get my mixes to translate and it's not your fault it's your monitoring rig i can't tell you how many emails i've gotten from people from podcast listeners um from people who know me uh in the studio world here locally um even from people that saw my sweetwater articles or my reverb articles and they've asked me about treatment and I give them the same spiel and so many of them still don't believe me but I've gotten emails from people like years later who you know I I remember getting one in the the subject line on the email was in all caps you were right And and he basically said you know for all that time you told me to treat my room treat my room move my speakers find a good listening placement buy a measurement microphone test out my space figure out what's wrong And I finally did it and it's made the biggest difference in the world. And it's like, yeah, it really, really can. I'm telling you from personal experience, treating other people's rooms all over my state, that untreated rooms, when people set up their speakers just as is, the likelihood of it being good is almost zero. Okay, like I treated a room about three months ago and we had a huge huge drop off at 55 hertz or something and there was just like no bass below 55 hertz and we ended up finding a good spot for the speakers where that actually leveled out quite a bit and they ended up getting a sub which then really allowed us flexibility that's another one of those things people tell you things online all the time like don't put your speakers close to a wall don't use a sub if you don't have to and it's just all a myth okay whatever gets you the results that you need In this room, we got amazing results with a very simple subwoofer and the speakers ended up fairly close to the front wall, um, kind of unexpectedly, but it worked the best. We were able to get a plus minus 3 dB response in this room, which is fantastic for a room of that size. I mean, that's like really, really difficult to do. And we didn't even have tons and tons of treatment in there. Uh, We were very fortunate. Um, in my studio, my studio is plus minus two and a half dB. Okay. It's, I'm very proud of that. It's a very accurate space. Mixing is hard enough as it is in a perfect room. Okay. And I don't even have a perfect room, right? Like mixing is hard enough to like decide what to do. What, where do I start? How do I treat a vocal? What effects do I use? Like there are already so many decisions that you're going to have to make while mixing a song. Why put that hurdle in front of you? Like, it it makes no sense, okay? The last couple of rooms I've treated have all been treated, including my fee of doing it, for under $3,000. There's not, I mean, that's not even that much in the grand scheme of, you know, that's a couple of outboard gear pieces. That's, you know, one nice studio monitor. That's one computer. And, And it's, it's really not that expensive in the grand scheme. That's as expensive as a single, you know, nice boutique guitar or a nice guitar amp, right? Like, but yet it will change everything you do. It will change every decision you make. It will make every decision you make easier and more trustable. Oh, I promised I wouldn't get on a rant. That's, that's as far as I'm going to go, guys. I promise I'm not going to go on anymore. The point is, your monitoring chain is so important. For me, yes, I use Barefoot MM27s, and I love them to death. But before this, I had other Barefoot monitors, and before that, I had Focal monitors, and I love those too. Um, it, it, the monitors really aren't the most important part of the chain. Uh, they really aren't. Like, the Barefoots are only slightly flatter um, than monitors half this price. Uh, I do think they have an amazing transient response. I do love the design. I do think they work well in my room. Um, 
and that's the other funny thing is that some people will buy barefoots. Um, my old intern just bought a pair of barefoots and he was very, uh, after, after he loves mine. And so he was like, I'm going to try barefoot. So he bought a set and in his room, they didn't work. Uh, barefoots, as you might know, have side firing subwoofers that are on the side of the speakers. And in his particular room, they did not work. They did not work nearly as well as his Focal speakers. So he sent the Barefoots back. He's smart enough to know, hey, it's not just about how good the speakers may or may not be. It's a whole system. So he sent back the Barefoots in favor of his cheaper Focals because his response was worse. Even though in a laboratory setting, the Barefoot response is better. The room was completely screwing that up. Okay. It's, it is an entire system. And if you don't believe me, if you are not listening to this immediately thinking to yourself, man, I really should check out my room, then you're in denial. You're in absolute denial and you've learned nothing from this podcast. <laughs> okay. Maybe that, maybe that's a little harsh, but I mean it. It's so, so important. It is my number one studio tool without a doubt. Okay, as usual, I have a couple of honorable mentions that I just couldn't quite decide if they should be on the list or not. Honestly, all of these are great. I could have made a top 13. These might have been on there as well. But with three honorable mentions for you, number one is a patch bay. Now, I've seen a lot of confusion out there about patch bays and why you need one and how they work and why I have them and use them all the time. I have four patch bays and I use them literally every day I'm tracking uh, and I use them while mixing too. I'm using it right now. Patch bay is, is not as complicated as it sounds. A patch bay is really just a center point for all of your cable snakes to attach. And then from there you can attach and reroute things as needed with patch cables on the front. I plan on doing a YouTube video about patch bays because there's so much confusion about them, about what is normaled operation and half normaled and throughput and all of that stuff. But a patch bay is a really useful device. Now, if you don't have a lot of analog gear, you might not need one. If you do have analog gear, how do you how can you do it without having one? I mean, it, it's such a pain to plug things in and out directly in the back. I never have to plug in and out things in the back of gear anymore. That stuff over there in my rack has been plugged in for five years. Um, you know, I do it all on the patch bay. Everything goes to the patch bay. My inputs to my interface, the outputs of my interface, all of my outboard gear, all of my mic preamps, any of my outboard like spring reverbs or my pedals, my reamp box, my click is on the patch bay, my talkback's on the patch bay, everything is on the patch bay. I can reroute anything at a moment's notice using the patch bay. Super useful. You probably need one. Honorable mention number two is the EbTech HumX. I think I talked about this a little bit on the show about commonly confused audio terminology, but what this basically is, is a simple little device that is a ground loop isolator. It doesn't work in every situation and it's not a magic bullet, but in certain situations, this device can save your life from hum. <laughs> um, this basically plugs straight into an outlet and you can plug in a piece of gear or a pedal board or an amp or something. It's gen it's intended for a single piece of gear generally. Um, but this thing helps eliminate ground loops. If you go into a place where you're recording remotely and you might have electrical issues, this thing can work amazingly. Um, and if this doesn't work, another sort of like co-honorable mention with this would be like a trip light isolation transformer, which can do a similar thing and essentially fully isolate your ground. Um, these are generally cheap devices. I think a good, decent isolation transformer is like 150 bucks, 200 bucks. And the EbTech Humex is, I think, $50, maybe 60. Um, I'm not sure how well these might work outside of the US with different plugs, if they even make them with different plugs, or if you'd have to use adapters. I'm not quite sure. Um, on mine, it says AC 120 volts, and I'm assuming this would be set for 60 hertz. So I'm not sure about this working outside of the U.S., but for me, this device has saved my life a couple of times, and really, you know, I went to record piano at an old church, and the electricity in that room was terrible. And I brought two of these, and thankfully, I was able to isolate my uh, my whole mobile rig and my tube mics from the ice from the room there, and not have any noise problems. I wouldn't. Have 
have been able to do it otherwise. The electricity in there was terrible. Of course, with good electrical practices, if your room is wired well, if the electricity was done well, um, you might not have any problems with this. But sometimes you're going to have issues, especially if you're using... Like, what most people don't understand is one of the main reasons you have hum or ground loop issues is because you're using two separate outlets meaning two separate circuits and things are interconnected between them. For example, let's say you have one circuit that's going to your tracking room and one circuit that's going to your control room and you are connecting a guitar cable in your control room that then goes to the other room and connects to that amp that's powered by the other outlet. So you're having two different grounds. Essentially, a ground loop happens when you have multiple paths to ground. That's one of the ways that it happens. And that's one of the most common ways that this happens. So um, you could, in theory, in certain situations, use the EBTEC HUMX to isolate one piece or the other so you're not using that ground. Essentially, you're essentially isolating it, not really lifting it, but um, isolating it. Um, the other way, of course, is that there's audio ground and there's power ground. And again, I, I don't have time necessarily to get into all of that today. One of the episodes I want to talk about in the future is grounding and isolation and how to keep your studio noise free. So that's definitely something I'm going to do in the future. So we can talk a lot more about that. But if you want to pick up a Humex, they're, like I said, they're cheap. They're 60 bucks, I think. And they might just come in handy in your session and give you noise-free performance. And number three on the honorable mention list is a good analog compressor. Now, I know this one's kind of a little bit of a cheap shot because not all of you want to invest in analog gear. Not all of you have a big rack full of gear. I understand that. But I do recommend to anybody out there having one decent analog compressor or even two can be really, really handy. And there's no other compressor I would recommend as a first good compressor than the Empirical Labs Distressor. It's just the Swiss Army knife of analog compressors. It's pretty clean. You can make it dirty. I wouldn't necessarily call it like super vibey, but I also wouldn't call it as clean as a plug-in. Um, it's this nice middle ground where it almost always works. If I legitimately could only choose one compressor to use the rest of my life, it would probably be that just because it can do so much. I use it a lot on snare. It's cool on vocals. It's great on bass. I love it on acoustic guitar, actually. It's kind of unexpected. I use the, the uh, two-to-one mode, and it's amazing on acoustic guitar. Um, it, uh, having one or two nice analog compressors can really save you a lot of time and energy later. Now, again, I have to issue the warning if you compress something too much on the way in, you can't really undo it. But the distressor has a really great readout that allows you to see a pretty good representation of how much you're compressing. And you can compress a little bit and make it almost invisible, or you can compress a ton and make it super obvious. It's absolutely the one compressor I would recommend to people who are considering getting into analog compression. Now, why? Well, I talked about it a little bit on the last show, but tools that save me time are super, super valuable to me. And compressing in the analog domain is one of the biggest things that saves me time in the mix because it allows me to get sounds where I need to go faster. For example, I'm almost always going to compress bass a little bit. I'm almost always going to compress vocals. I'm almost always going to compress snare a little bit. Even if it's just a touch, even if it's just the tiniest amount to help level it out, sometimes I need to do more. Sometimes I don't need to do much at all. But the thing is, you can save yourself time and energy in the mix, and you can get sounds where they need to be faster, easier. And yes, it is easy to overdo it, I will admit. Um, but the more you work with it, the better you'll get at it. I, I, I highly encourage all of you to never be afraid out there. You know what I mean? Like, don't be afraid to do a wacky technique or don't be afraid to use analog EQ because you're thinking, well, I think I'll screw it up. I mean, yeah, you probably will. But like, that's how you learn. You know what I mean? That's how you learn to not overdo it. That's how you learn to not overcompress is by doing it a couple of times and realizing like, man, 
I'm going to have to retract that guitar because I compressed it too much or, or whatever. Um, you'll never really advance if you don't get some sort of use with it. And that's the other thing is by using analog compression, not only do my raw tracks sound closer to a finished product when I'm done recording, I use less CPU power. I don't have to use as many plugins and we all know how it can be, um, you know, searching through your list of plugins, trying to find a compressor that might work, um, you know, and it, it's just not as fast as you think it is, you know, like ironically, like a plugin, like the plugin version of the distressor takes me longer to tweak than my hardware version because I have two hands and only one mouse. You know what I mean? Like I know my distressor and the plugin is really, really close. Sounds a little bit different. And I have to tweak it a little bit slower because I only have one mouse, not two hands on a hardware unit. Um, so I can get a good sound on a distressor in 30 seconds, but I might spend, you know, two or three minutes messing with the plugin. Multiply that by a lot of different tracks that might need compression. Multiply that by the number of songs on the record. Multiply that by the number of records you do in a year. Multiply that by the number of years that you do this. It really adds up. So I highly recommend considering getting some analog compression in your workflow. It can really be helpful. Not necessarily a make or break, not a requirement by any means, but it is a studio tool. It is a workflow enhancer and it can save you time. Okay, I hope everyone has enjoyed this episode out there. Thanks for tuning in. Again, all the Patreon supporters out there, I love you. Thank you for supporting the show. PayPal subscribers, thank you as well. Check out that info on my website, recordingloungepodcast.com. You can go to the support RL tab to learn more. Um, as always, if you have questions, comments, show suggestions, episode ideas, please send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. I'll be back next month with, I believe, two shows, maybe just one. Um, but I'm going to try to get two shows in the month of May and, uh, got some really cool topics coming up. So I'll talk to you next time.